Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 20th of March, 2020, and we are recording our third segment of my epistemology and metaphysics leading toward my scientific worldview, which of course informs my descriptions and discussion of the literature published in biochemistry, physiology, molecular genetics, immunology, pathophysiology. <clears throat> so I'm going to get started without any further introduction than that, and just we will proceed. So what I'm doing right now is a short preface to segment three of my basically epistemological arrival to metaphysics as informing my scientific worldview, which I will now affectionately start calling a critique of pure science. Now, in concreto, what I collectively obtain in reference to scientific principles and theories on how the world functions is an axis of judgment for the existing individual. So as a scientist, I'm not only a free to choose what I will while living, but also I'm inwardly encouraged to judge the authenticity of that agency. <clears throat> as a biochemist, for most of my career, as, and as, of course, a biochemistry professor, I've taught, ascribed to the evidence that has both preceded myself, that has been contemporaneously accumulating and correcting via the tools of scientific research, ongoing scientific research, and in which I contribute via publication in refereed scientific journals. That's all to a worldview that appears to better, a scientific worldview, appears to better describe this world of phenomena that we exist in. My intensive training and long life scholarship in the natural sciences, paramount being my disciplines of biochemistry and physiology, where I'm awarded my doctorate degree, afforded me to better investigate and interpret how life processes function. Throughout the process, I seek knowledge which I define from philosophical principles as the product of what I call justified true belief. Now, this justification <clears throat> involves the iterative and indeed recursive demonstration of those scientific concepts and ideas that explain new incoming sense data. Truth involves obtaining information that both coheres with my knowledge base that already exists and which can be readily apprehended when I seek to confirm it. Belief, that third part of JFJTB, is the inward and objective arrival of owning all those justifications and truths as an ethical and indeed moral foundation of self perpetually becoming better in that corpus of knowledge. Now, before I proceed, I want to make sure I explain my reasoning for coining the term endojective. <clears throat> Let's go back to uh, some science. An electromagnetic field describes phenomena in a space between two or more events, which have properties of things like attraction or repulsion that are significant, signified by either an electrical current or a magnetic moment, then the waves and particles that travel through that field 
are free to interact with any other electromagnetic phenomena they might encounter as a function of their size, their distribution, their direction, their magnitude, and, of course, charge density. <clears throat> so the field itself could be composed of matter or exist as a vacuum devoid of mass, but still with the potential to obtain light in the form of photons. Thus, electrons and the components of the atomic nucleus, <clears throat> as well as the emission of light and the generation of heat, will all play a role in that electromagnetic spectrum. Now, just follow along what I'm doing here. Given these basic principles, as I ascertained by the reading and learning of J. Clerk Maxwell, can we then assume that any such electromagnetic field can and will exert a force on any other such field, or indeed on any other matter in motion, as well as the energy that matter in motion may interconvert? <clears throat> the only objection I have for such an assumption, of course, involves the requirement that all such electromagnetic fields must have universal and necessary conditions, a priori. They have to cohere with the properties of the truth mode with the properties and principles of such a field. To refute that objection, it's necessary to assert certainty. However, since uncertainty is the universal and necessary solvent of all existence, its subset of all things that at least temporarily behave certainly may not apply to the electromagnetic field, okay? Therefore, what I come up with is prudence requires that I allow electromagnetic field theory only according to observed and further measured phenomena. However, since uncertainty reigns supreme, I will finally assert that my best answer for the occurrence and indeed the existence of the electromagnetic field vis-a-vis -vis Clerk Maxwell is that I can allow for its ontological eventualism if I assent to grant it with free choice of my will. In this way, I'm prepared to obtain what I'm calling an endojectification, an endojectification for the electromagnetic field theory. Now, what does endojectification come from? That's my new term for that event which is owned intellectually <clears throat> by any given existing individual, where the Latin root ject means throne, is added to the Greek word root endo, which is inside. So I here suggest the term endojective be the substitute for the otherwise, I believe, completely ambiguous metaphysical use of the term subjective. <clears throat> So that's what I mean by endojective. It's thrown inside. Of course, we're free to choose to live our lives teleologically, as if in the aggregate it is one very impressive, basically like a chemical reaction mechanism. An event ontology where the denominator time is itself an unknown variable until death will set that eschaton. But then matters are the choices we make and the acceptance of the responsibility we must bear for each of those decisions, however large or small. 
we have the faculties of reason to provide a judgment upon ourselves during the process, and we can, upon evaluation and circumspection, change the road we are on as many times as we choose until the end. We do not know the day or the nature of our death, but we can understand ourselves earnestly and imagine becoming a better individual through our existence. So, here I'm going to interrogate for subsequent deployment the ever-clever human invention of the paradox. Paradox is a sort of a proposition whose seemingly incontrovertible conclusion is both logically unsettling and ultimately resolved via resolute reason. Now, irony takes the form of what I would call a dialectical contrarian contemplation, where the obvious result of an event is at once both unrecognized and yet obviously simultaneous, okay? Thus, ultimately ascending to a satisfactory conclusion. So it might be unrecognized, right? This dialectical contrarian contemplation might might seem unrecognized, but it's also obvious simultaneously. Therefore, it allows the individual to ultimately ascend to a conclusion, which is satisfactory. So both paradox and irony are recognized within the experience <coughs> that we have as reminders of the free choice of will in an uncertain universe of phenomena, which I've argued for. While the scientific worldview tries to either ignore or refute both the function and purpose of paradox and irony, it does so blinded by misconception and vacant of real life experience. So, in order to find the necessary elements of human existence, existence and therefore experience that can explain the phenomena that linked those sense perceptions to cognition and ultimately rational understanding that link must appropriate a universal lens of space time causality and the patterns of the recognition itself for this synthesis you need to provide a table of phenomenological categories that are implemented a priori so that the sensoria of both the immediate and mediated systems are processed to concepts of the understanding. <clears throat> now, this agency is within the hardware of the central nervous system, and it requires at least three elements. What are those three elements? Number one, genetically afforded receptor-mediated Spatio-temporal stimuli attunement and acquisition. Keyword there is acquisition. Number two, a combinatorial network organized ultimately epigenetically. It's a learning system that's both plastic and elastic. Poised, it's an organized epigenetically poised signal transduction via biochemical translation into the imagined ideation of perception. Keyword there is transduction. Third, a contemplative synthesis of quantized ideas patterned through recognized conception folded within an iterative consciousness of the understanding. Keyword there is conception. So I say that 
The agency of the hardware requires three elements. They are acquisition, one, transduction, two, and then conception, three. Now, remember we talked about Zeno, the Eleatic philosopher of antiquity, and he created these logical paradoxes. And he tried to undermine the atomists of his time, like Democritus, who wanted to talk about particles and without particles, simply the void between them. And Zeno would argue, since space and time were infinitely divisible, there was this mistake, of course, you could never get from one place to another or experience one moment to the next. Every time you proceed and you cover half the distance, you would somewhere, halfway, I guess, cover half that distance and thus half that distance and onward into what I was calling an infinitely downward spiraling reductio ad absurdum. Now, time, like space, also has the potential to be divided ad infinitum, except that it can never be infinitely be reduced. <clears throat> because, because infinity is a concept. It's neither a physical nor a metaphysical reality, simply a concept. So Zeno was really trying to prove a positive philosophical position championed by Parmenides, who wanted to say that there could only be one thing since more than one meant transversing a space in between however many things there were. So that space was void and void was emptiness or what I'm calling nothingness, so no thingness. Parmenides said that there was no divisibility in matter or time or space since one would have to go out of existence and then come back into existence every time, time there was a motion. And so he argued that you cannot get something out of nothing, so you can't get ex nihilo. And he pointed to real-life experience to prove it. What he would say, what he wrote, and the small amount of scroll material we have, have you ever seen anything go out of existence or come into existence? Well, probably the answer to that is no, and the ancients realized the same thing. So Zeno was trying to prove the impossibility of motion support Parmenides' argument. <clears throat> but Zeno, of course, was wrong. And of course, you know why, because this paradox has a way out. Here's the way you get out of Zeno's paradox. Infinity and eternity are not divisible, as he thought they were, because they're never experienced. You can only divide or measure things that are experienced. So infinity and eternity are pure concepts what you could call transcendentals that we obtain through our faculties of reason, but they are not themselves and never will be experienced. But let's get back to this concept of temporality. Time can easily be accounted for as a minus T or a plus T, right? And you can do this in statistical mechanics and indeed in quantum mechanics. Yet we macroscopically experience only positive time. Right, moving forward. Now, there's an analogy here in our subatomic quantum physics. We have electrons and positrons, and they are basically a foundation of chemistry, too. Yet we only need mathematically postul postulate the positron, even if we have an explanation for how it involves itself in chemical bonding and reactivity. Now, you might say this means nothing to everyday existence. 
yet we can be convinced it is just so. Our mind is reaching beyond the limits. What are we doing here? Our mind is reaching beyond the limits of experience. And I argue it does this as a matter of becoming and yet without terms like minus T and uh, basically the capital I imaginary numbers, there would be no engineering principles to design jet engines or even the computer I'm reading from. So everyday encounters require non-experienced a priori elements. And they're embedded in a faculty of reason that, for example, ultimately is able for you to fly from someplace like Chicago to, let's say, Kathmandu or anywhere else you choose. So we can infer that there is no certainty at the quantum level. And although we pretend to believe it, nothing is certain at our macro level either. It is objectively just probabilistic, objectively in the metaphysical sense. But that's good. Enough to send human beings to the moon and back again using Newtonian physics. However, this is not a metaphysical objective argument, as I just said. Rather, it is an endojective contemplation of sense reality, as believed by, in my instance right here, an existing individual who is having these thoughts. Therefore, the objective event, ontology of those transcendentals of space and time, are only possibilistic, and therefore, they are uncertain. So we define space according to three-dimensional coordinates and time as a sequence in motion, or as I prefer to consider, time as the sense experience of the eternal in motion. It is a means by which I categorize the plenum of waveform and particle events organized in the pattern we call sequential temporality. One moment follows the next within a given spatial coordinate relative to the agency of the endojective observer. So for my conscious awareness to occur, I must believe my experiences according to patterns of both spatial and temporal measure as preconceived through genetically expressed receptors that trigger action potentials in discrete individual epigenetically modifiable neural networks firing these electrochemical gradients across synaptic clefts. Now, the key proposition is that I must believe. For if I fail that ontological contemplative event, how can I proceed with probable cause toward my next agentic free choice of the will? Can't. Now, while attend and focus and judge and ascend to stimulate via a probable cause, intellectual landscaping, I also have knowledge that this is only a possibility inferred through that transcendental act of judgment, which I've been talking about, which is solely my own to deploy. I conclude that my probable cause is created by my choice from a possibilistic universe, where uncertainty is the only logical position I can really allow myself to obtain. Indeed, everything we call certain falls within the larger category of uncertainty, since certainty itself is uncertain. 
But uncertainty is also uncertain. And that is my proposition. Of course, uncertainty is uncertain. It is not certain since that would make it move from possible to necessary. And then you're left with the equation, uncertainty is proportional to necessity. And that is indeed a logical contradiction. It doesn't pass the logical square. However, certainty has a sovereign place in biology and in particular human understanding, which is at least ordinated in the living world. <clears throat> we find ourselves craving certainty and its reprehensible offspring, my opinion here, security. So even though the world is non-certain, we want to treat it as predictable. I would say that's paradoxical, wouldn't you say? So I propose that time and space are how we view the world, not how the world is. So this metaphysical issue can lead to an epistemic framing of event ontologies that we presume to govern the distribution of truths <clears throat> through space-time. <clears throat> but why would we care to call something true when we have no means to justify or experience it for ourselves? We just as likely can ignore these notions and live and life would just basically go on unfettered. But we don't do that, do we? We keep wanting to gather in our world around us and describe it statistically. We desire certainty in a world that is altogether uncertain. And this is the basic of a scientific worldview. Before that, a religious worldview. I call that system an a priori transcendental analogy. <clears throat> transcendental is the means by which we find the physical and the mental world. A priori simply means it is a pre-native state and a function of what exists. It's not the result of an event. That would be a posteriori. But the pseudo-naive conditions prior to the event with which we apprehend the world. That's what a priori is. So an example of an a priori transcendental is our agency for space and time, something I've just been talking about. <clears throat> and the resulting law of what? Causality. There's nothing in the stimulus of the world that is perceived as pure space or time. Objects are perceived through sensorial as moments of radiation and wave particle duality. These percepts, or you can call them sense data, <clears throat> are processed through our neural network, and then they're integrated into such that we form and inform concepts from them. In other words, our mind provides a capacity to experience the outer world as temporal and spatial. And by virtue of this capacity, we associate the empirical world with our faculty of the understanding, and the result is conscious thought which bequeaths the outcome we call reason. Now, this is called an analogy. <clears throat> I'm calling it an analogy because this is the mode of the faculties of reason, which appropriates the comparative known world. So, by definition, that's an analogy. So, it is by analogy that we see a pine tree and understand it is a token of the material world we call trees, and it's a specific kind, namely a pine, not a, say, an oak, which would be an angiosperm, so a conifer versus an angiosperm. 
So that is a movement of the inductive okay, in productive logic. We experience the world, we think about it, and when we experience something that is similar cluster of sense data, we analyze it and subsequently judge that it is of the same kind of what we have had a previous understanding of. I think we do this to help predict our immediate future. And this is perhaps a selected trait in brain evolution uh, as it offers selective advantage. Now that in itself has been a speculation. Now in the epistemological sense, space and time seem more protected. We have a rule-governed, law-abiding universe that although it gets fuzzy when you look at it closely or from far away, the joints and corners where physical objects obtain are measurable. And to a close approximation, they're even often rather predictable. But wait, don't we need to justify and find truth in this belief? Isn't that what knowledge is after all, justify true belief? So how do we justify when we have no controls? We have no way to compare the, this landscape that we have in front of us to another. And how do we show this subject-object conformity, right, which is so touted about in science? We need at the very least an Aristotelian demonstration that physical objects conform to rules and their properties are universal. We also need to show the physical world is necessary, not contingent. But once again, where is the place we call it this causally closed universe? No empirical representations demonstrate universality or necessity. Indeed, all things turn, right? So in the macro world, we can dull our wits and pretend things always happen from efficient causes. But in the light of day, chance and free choice of the will leave everything at a tipping point. That's my point here today. Now, as far as rational expectorations go, <clears throat> a priori concepts end up reaffirming the metaphysical minefield we just crossed. How we know what we know is how we are. I think that puts what appeared to be an easy task into one not so likely to exceed. So as we continue on, I want to ask, why would we care to call something true when we have no means to justify or experience it for ourselves? You could, of course, argue that what really matters are those things to find ready to engage, ready at hand, and then intentionally employ in the world the things that are but we are not satisfied in having our world ready to use. We want to know how that state has come to be and if it is indeed necessary and universal. So you can ask yourself, why is it hard to flourish in a world we seem to master? If you set aside psychology and physicality for a moment, what obtains is, of course, a very strange answer to that question. Since our individual experience is a perpetual process of becoming, and that foundation of becoming is the world that sets everything else up. So we're going to leave you with that. And we're going to finish my discussion of epistemology and metaphysics the next time we meet. I want you to try to consider what I've said as a dialectical series of arguments and uh, please respond to my podcast or send me an email at djgphd at gmail.com so we could further discuss this. This is how I inform my scientific worldview. 
And that's what I've been discussing. Thank you for your time and have a good day. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry in the most epistemological and metaphysical sense on the 20th of March, 2020. Bye for now.